0: The title of our last session, Establishing Our Plans, the Financial Planning Pyramid. And as we heard from the peanut gallery earlier, we're going to be talking about a pyramid scheme. So before we dive into that, though, once again, here's the link, the QR code. If you missed any of the previous sessions, you are able to catch them on Audioverse. All five previous sessions are available now with all the slides. Now last week during the Q&A session, there was a specific question that was asked regarding how do I ensure that I don't end up having a bunch of money in my bank account when Jesus comes? And I think that is an excellent question, so excellent that I actually did a whole hour-long presentation on this. This was given at the Michigan Conference camp meeting a number of years ago, and it is dealing with answering the question, when do we Sell everything in light of the end times. And I think this will be an invigorating study through prophecy and applying that uh, with the very practical aspects of how do we manage our money. So to introduce our topic this evening, I want to share a couple Bible verses with you. Proverbs 16:3: "Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established." Proverbs 16:9. "The heart of man plans His way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Psalms 20, verse 4 says, May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. Is planning a good thing or a bad thing according to these verses? Planning is a good thing. There is a saying. If you fail to plan, you're planning to fail. Now, I've also heard some people I've spoken to where they believe that Us making plans is an act of faithlessness. Have you heard this? There's a statement that we've read in certain places that Jesus made no plans for himself, right? And so it's like, well, we just need to be spontaneous because that's letting the Spirit lead. Well, that goes contrary to what we read in the Scriptures, but let me just think about this for a moment. Is God a God of chaos or a God of order? He's a God of order. And is the Holy Spirit capable of leading and guiding only during a time of spontaneity? Or is he able to guide and lead during a plan of, or during the time of planning and deliberation? The Holy Spirit is able to guide throughout the process. The point of the matter is, we have to commit our work to the Lord. We have to commit our plans to the Lord and throughout the process, be in the mind space of saying, Lord, is this the plan that you want us to lay down and to execute, right? So the idea is not to say we become a slave to our plan and we make our own will God in the place of God, but to subsume our will to God, but also to cooperate with God from start to finish and to do what the Bible tells us, which is to lay our plans before him and to let him direct our ways. Luke fourteen twenty eight to 30. We've read this together before, but let me just reiterate. Jesus says this, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Again, Jesus, in different words, admonishing us, Plan ahead. F- begin with the end in mind. And also, Jesus uses an example of building a tower. This is helpful to us because we're going to be building something tonight. Except we're not building a tower, we're going to be building a pyramid. Alright? A pyramid. Now, what am I talking about? Let me show you. We're going to be looking at the financial planning pyramid. And a financial planning pyramid is merely an illustration that helps organize the process as well as the building blocks and components that comprise a healthy financial position. And just like a pyramid, you have to start with the foundation and you have to build things in order in order for the structure to stand, uh, to withstand stress and also to stand the test of time. And just like there is the food pyramid, we have now the financial planning pyramid. And also, this is helpful for our final session together because now. This is a framework for me to hit all of the topics I wanted to talk about, but wasn't able to. Uh, But also, because some of these building blocks are so significant, I have spent one or more sessions dealing with just one of these building blocks in previous sessions. And so I'm not going to go through everything. You might be thinking, wow, this is a lot to cover. You're right, it is. But we're not going to go in-depth into everything. We're going to give you an overview, but then there are a few specific highlights that I'm gonna drill down into and focus a little bit more on. So this is helpful to fill in the blanks on some important topics. All right, so what is the foundational layer? There are four layers, four levels, if you will, to this financial planning pyramid. And the first level are the foundations, the foundational stones, if you will. Number one here, first, income and cash flow. There's no financial planning if you have no money. So how do you get it in the first place? Income, cash flow, earning, working, things of that nature. And then right after that, we have tithe and offerings. And then after that, we have our emergency fund, which is really the first phase of risk management, which is the next building block, risk management and insurance. They go together. And then debt reduction. And that's one of the topics that I'm not going to touch on at all tonight because we spent a whole hour on this already previously. There's employee benefits after that. And then estate planning. And some of us might be thinking, estate planning, that's like end-of-life stuff. Why is it on the bottom of the pyramid? Well, you'll find out when we get there. So let's take, our, let's take a survey through these building blocks of the foundation of the pyramid. First, we talked about cash flow and income. And we spent a bit of time going over this already. Budgeting, we had a whole session on this already. This is tracking expenses and being intentional with our savings. And then earning, there's no substitute for sound work ethic. Money comes from work. And we uh, are going to look at a few verses here that, that corroborate this. Proverbs 14, 23 says, In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. 2 Thessalonians three ten. This is one of my all-time favorite Bible verses. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Don't work, don't eat. <laughs> That's basically what Paul is saying. And he just gives us, this, this is the biblical foundation for what's known as the Protestant work ethic. Whatever your hand find to do, do it as unto the Lord. And that's where money comes from. Hard work. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this idea of active versus passive income. If you do any type of Googling about you know, finance, personal finances and, and investing in whatever, passive income is sure to come up. What's the difference? What is active income versus passive income? Active income is earned through the exchange of time or labor. This is what we commonly associate as work. For example, salary, wages, tips, commissions, things of that nature. You exchange your time and your labor in exchange for a paycheck. Well, what about passive income? Passive income is income that comes from your income-producing assets. So you're not exchanging your time and labor, but you actually have assets that are working for you that generates an income. So think some examples might be stock, dividends, rental income, book royalties. One thing that we're all familiar with would be interest. You you put money in the savings account and you collect a monthly interest on that money. That's passive income. You're not working for it. You're not exchanging your time and labor. You're depositing your capital. In that case, that's the That's the asset. Basically, you're loaning the bank your money, and in return, they pay you an an interest. And financial independence as a term in the financial uh, industry means when your passive income pays your bills so that you no longer have to work for an active income. Okay, Financial independence, this is basically what retirement means. I no longer have to clock into my nine to five. The investments or my assets are now able to generate enough income to pay for all my needs. But this passive income, I think, sometimes it has a bit of a myth around it. Because passive, the word sometimes passive means I don't have to do anything. That's what we usually say, mean when we say passive. Well, passive income does not mean no effort. Uh, Passive income invariably requires a high initial outlay of resources, whether it's capital, time, energy, or all of the above. One of the most common passive income sources people refer to is rental income, real estate. You buy a house or an apartment or a duplex, and you rent it out. And they say, see, that's passive income. And when people say that, as if there's no work involved, I look at them and say, you've never, you've never been a landlord. <laughs> you've never had a call. In the middle of the night, oh, the toilet is flooding. There's a leak in the roof. Uh, the, a tree fell on. You know, the air conditioning blew up when it's a heat wave in the middle of the summer. All of these issues come up uh, with rental properties so that it's not really passive. It's like another job, but it's still considered passive income in the sense that it is not a direct translation of your time to, and your labor for the amount that you're earning. So, the asset is primarily what's generating the income. Oh, another one. Uh, So, passive income usually requires some level of upkeep or maintenance. You know, the rental property is a great example. You're gonna have to cut the lawn, you're gonna have to fix the roof, you're gonna have to paint the place, and change the light bulbs, and, you know, evict a terrible tenant, things of that nature. One other funny one that I've heard somebody once told me, oh, you should just start a YouTube channel. It's passive income. All you need to do is release a new video every day. That's not passive, my friend. But, um, so this is just a clarification. Passive income means a certain definition, but we have to understand what it doesn't mean as well. So let's talk about tithe and offerings. I've gone through six weeks, and I have not talked about tithe and offerings. That's either intentional or irresponsible. It's your, your choice. Well, it is intentional uh, for one very simple reason, is that whenever we talk about money in the church, the accusation is the church only cares about tithe and offerings. They just want money. And so whenever I give a personal finance seminar, I try not to make this the highlight to avoid that accusation. But nevertheless, it is absolutely crucial. It is one of the foundational building blocks of our financial planning pyramid. Why is that? Well, let's take a look. This is the most uh, key verse on, on this subject in Malachi 3, 8 through 10. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. So much to mine out of this passage. I know we've studied this many times, but a couple highlights. First, why is it foundational? Well, personal finance is being responsible with our money, and if we're robbing God, that is the definition of irresponsibility, right? So we need to make sure we have our ducks in a row. Tithes and offerings need to be prioritized in our financial plan. But the other reason is that God says to test him. Try me now in this and see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that you won't have room enough to receive it. I cannot make it through the rest of my financial plan without God's blessing, right? I need as much of the blessing as I can possibly get in order for me to have the best chance of financial success. So spiritually speaking, these are two reasons why tithes and offerings is so foundational. Now, we're not going to do a deep dive on this subject, but I do want to answer one question. One question that almost invariably comes up whenever we talk about tithing in particular is the question of, do we tithe on the gross or the net? Have you heard this question? Perhaps the more appropriate question is do we tithe before or after taxes? That's usually what people are referring to, because the term gross and net actually has slightly it might have different definitions depending on the context. So to answer this question, I want to introduce you or share with you this idea of the first fruits principle. So Proverbs 3, 9 and 10 says this: Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. What does first fruits mean? It's not a trick question. The first fruits means the first harvest, the first piece, you know, the first amount that is harvested. So the question, therefore, is who gets paid first? Does God get paid first? Does Uncle Sam get paid first? Or do we ourselves get paid first? If we go by according to the biblical principle of the first fruits, it's pretty clear God gets paid first, before Uncle Sam, and before ourselves. And when we understand this principle, I think the question of gross or net, before or after taxes, resolves itself quite nicely. Now, so of course, to make it perfectly clear and explicit, I believe we pay tithe before our taxes and before our personal expenses— Now, the next question that frequently arises, well, what about in a business? How do you tithe on a business? Well, this is, as best I can summarize my position on this. We pay our tithe based on our before tax net profit, okay? And that means after business expenses, but before taxes. But if there are any personal expenses that we are charged to the business, those should be backed out of the tithing calculation. So how do I arrive at this uh, conclusion? Well, first of all, first fruits of what? And with the first fruits of all your increase. And that, I believe, translates nowadays to profit. Profit is the increase. So the increase is the profit that is generated. And for a business, frequently there are businesses that do not even earn a 10% margin, meaning the profit, is less than 10% of the gross receipts and the gross income. And so if we apply this in such a manner to be a universal rule, there are many businesses that simply will go out of, will completely go out of business. And for this principle to be applicable, it needs to be universal, right? And so therefore, my best summary is before taxes on the net profit, okay? So it's still, we're still paying God first from the from the increase before Uncle Sam and before ourselves. All right. We're going to talk about the emergency fund now. The emergency fund we talked about previously, but one thing that I think a lot of people have questions about is, okay, what are some safe places for the emergency fund? So I just give you eight options here, and we're just going to go through some of them very quickly. The first one, high-yield savings account and money market accounts. And I want to highlight a money market account is not the same as money market funds, which we're going to talk about in, on number seven here. These are basically FDIC insured accounts and in banks and credit unions. Certificate of deposits, I think we know what those are from a bank or credit union. But there's a special flavor of credit certificates of deposits called brokered CDs, which generally pay a higher interest rate because they are in a more competitive marketplace where you have to purchase them from a brokerage account and a brokerage account would be something like a Charles Schwab or a Fidelity account something like that and then there are treasury bills which are short-term bonds issued by the U.S. treasury you can purchase these either through a brokerage account or you can purchase them directly from the treasury via their website which is called treasury direct Uh, just before Warren the treasury direct website is not very user-friendly it's improved a little bit but it is it can be um, difficult to navigate And then there are treasury bill ETFs, which is essentially a special wrapper where many treasury bills are purchased by the fund manager and you just purchase one security that has many treasury bills inside. You don't have to buy or sell. You don't have to worry about maturities and they just pay you a monthly interest rate. And then there are the series I bonds, which come also, you have to buy these directly from treasury direct. You cannot get them anywhere else and these are special bonds that are pegged to inflation. And so last year, when inflation was roaring, a Series I bond was paying 9.65% interest. And uh, these are guaranteed to not lose money because they never go below zero. The interest rate can only go to zero and you'll never lose your principal. It's guaranteed with the full faith and credit of the United States government. And they operate similar to a CD, but the interest rate varies. They change every six months based on where inflation is at. So that's another option. Number seven are money market funds. And these are a type of mutual fund that hold very short duration uh, cash equivalent instruments that then uh, keep keep your um, dollar amount, your principal steady while paying a rate of interest. And then number eight is the SDA union revolving funds. These are revolving funds that are managed by the Union of the Adventist Church. Here in the Southern Union, we have the SURF, Southern Union Revolving Fund. And in essence, you can deposit your funds in there as a savings, and then they take that amount to loan out to other church entities at a reasonable interest rate. Right now, they're loaning it out at about 5%. And then as depositors, we earn a 3% interest rate, and the interest rates go up and down. Now, this is one way to support the mission of the church, of course, earn a little bit of interest, but just be forewarned, it is backed only by the faith and credit of the church. So if you believe in the financial stability of the church, it's a great option, Uh, but of course it is not the same thing as FDIC insurance or the full faith and credit of the United States government. So there is a difference in risk factor here. Now, these are just some options. You can do your homework and and look into them. I will say that based on the current market conditions, We are looking at, you should be able to easily get over 5% interest on your cash with no risk to your money, essentially. And so the revolving fund, of course, is a little bit lower than that. Now, the, the, the point of an emergency fund is to have, to protect your principal. So you don't want volatility in the underlying value of your assets Uh, So it's going to be in a cash or cash-equivalent type of asset. You want it to be highly liquid so that when you need the money, it's available for you. And because of the interest rate situation we are in now, it's reasonable to expect a rate of return. We shouldn't get a zero when savings account are paying 5%. So this is an unusual time for sure, but these are some options you can look into. Okay, now we need to talk about risk management. This is the other foundational building block in the pyramid. And this is a two-by-two risk matrix that is frequently used to illustrate how to manage different types of risk. We're going to start at the upper left-hand corner, and you can see the vertical axis here is talking about severity, high to low severity. And severity is usually referred to, we're talking about dollar amount, how much are we going to lose? And then frequency is the horizontal axis, how often is this risk going to occur? And you can see in the upper left-hand corner, things that occur with low frequency but high severity, the solution to managing this risk is to transfer the risk. Now, what's an example of this? A tornado sweeping through and destroying my home would be an example of a low-frequency, high-severity risk. So what do you do to manage this kind of risk? You transfer the risk, and what we use to transfer risk is called insurance. Insurance is a risk transferal mechanism. You pay a little something for someone to adopt the risk that you otherwise would shoulder completely on your own. So that makes sense. But what about this upper right-hand corner? Uh, high frequency, high severity. That's like red light. This is really bad news. What kind of uh, risk are we talking about there? Well, texting while driving. You know, every time we drive, we have the risk of texting. And, and, and every time we do that, we're running the risk of having a serious accident. So how do you manage this kind of risk? Well, you avoid it altogether. You stop the behavior, right? You, you prevent it from ever happening. That's how you uh, address that risk. No insurance company is gonna insure you for texting while driving, right? Okay, now what about the, the quadrant under that? Things that happen at fairly high frequency, but they're low severity, meaning they're not gonna cost a whole lot. How do you reduce the risk there? An example might be your car gets dinged in the parking lot. Right? We all have that experience. It can happen on a semi-regular basis. Well, you prevent it. You park a little farther away, right? Or something to that effect. Or you, you wrap your car for some people who are really into that kind of thing. So, what about the last section here? All right? Low frequency, low severity. These are things that you just basically don't worry about. You retain the risk, meaning I'll just pay for it. So, losing my phone. And when I say losing my phone, I don't mean losing it in the couch cushion. I mean like I dropped it into the river and I lost it completely, right? You know, a phone is one of those things where we should have an emergency fund that we can just buy a new phone. Like, no need to stress out about things like that. Um, And so we just self-insure. That's the way we handle these types of risks. Now, let's talk about a few examples, okay? Car insurance. When we think about car insurance, we have to realize that car insurance is actually... Two different kinds of insurance in one. There is the liability insurance, which is the required piece, meaning if you run into somebody and you are found to be at fault, you're going to have to pay the injuries and the lawsuits, whatever that arises. That is a high severity, hopefully, low uh, frequency event. And that is the type of risk that we all have to transfer to insurance. We're required to do it by law. But then frequently we talk about insurance as also collision and comprehensive coverage, which is now not, no longer covering the liability, but covering the replacement of the vehicle or the repair of the vehicle. And this is where we have to treat the two as separate because you don't have to get comprehensive and collision coverage on your vehicle. You can choose to omit that entirely or you can reduce it or have a higher deductible or whatnot. Now, if you have an expensive car, Let's say you bought a $100,000 Tesla. Well, if you total that car, that would be a high-severity type of risk that you just experienced. But if you've got a $5,000 Toyota Corolla, all of a sudden, you've slid all the way down to a low-severity quadrant where it becomes a low-frequency, low-severity type of scenario. And so, I have actually advised some people where they purchase the comprehensive and collision coverage on their vehicle. And I will just tell you, if you look at the itemized cost of your health, or not health insurance, sorry, your car insurance, collision and and, and comprehensive is going to be vastly more expensive. Bigger share, lion's share, compared to the liability piece. And so, I know people, they had like a, you know, 1998 Dodge Neon. It was worth, you know, like nothing and they were paying more on an annual basis for collision and comprehensive coverage on that vehicle than the car was worth. So in a situation like that, you insure for the liability that we must have, but in a situation like that, no need to get comprehensive coverage for the vehicle. All right? So this is a way to save on insurance by understanding how the risk matrix works. All right? Now, another type of insurance, and this one I'm afraid I don't have as much good news for you. And that is health insurance why is health insurance so expensive there are lots of explanations for this but based on the risk matrix what is is health insurance really designed for the way that insurance is designed is for low frequency high severity situations so we're talking about catastrophic instances situations that don't occur very frequently but what when we talk about health insurance now Every time we see the doctor, every time we have a nick or scratch or bruise, we need a Band-Aid, we need to go get some Tylenol from over-the-counter, whatever. It's like, health insurance needs to pay for it all, right? And of course, when we get into chronic illness and lifestyle problems, we're no longer in the low-frequency side of the quadrants anymore. It is a very high-frequency type of situation that we expect health insurance to pay for. So in other words, health insurance has been forced to do a job that it was never optimized for. And as a result, premiums go up, costs go up. And that's why health insurance is so broken in many regards. And so, how do we manage this? Lifestyle change. This is a church that is very focused on lifestyle and health. And there is a direct financial benefit to this. Because if you manage your your lifestyle so that there are fewer chronic type illnesses that drain, that require you to pay for the super high cost health insurance plan, to pay for all of the frequent doctor visits and, and medications and all of that, you're able to subsist on a lower premium, high deductible type of health insurance plan. And obviously, I know every situation is different, but in general, that's the principle so if I can say it this way, and it's going to come back in several parts of this presentation, if we improve our health, we save money. All right? that's, that's actually one of the, uh, the, the best ways to save money is to preserve our health. And, and prevention is the best cure. So we need, to get help, uh, we need to get insurance, but not insure for everything. Insurance for high severity and low frequency risks. So we need to be careful not to overinsure. And thinking of the risk matrix, we can understand there are certain things that people will sell us insurance plans for. Oh, every little thing that happens, just there's an insurance plan for that. We don't need insurance for everything, only for the things that it's optimized for. So for risks that are larger than what we can afford to cover through our personal savings, our emergency fund, that's where we take a look at insurance. And the emergency fund can provide some coverage for things like deductible and out-of-pocket maximums, thereby reducing the premiums. So the first line of defense for risk management is really having a sound three to six month emergency fund because that's the cushion to to absorb the initial impact before we have to pay the big bucks for health insurance plans or whatever insurance plans to kick in. Now the last point here is, this is speaking probably more for life insurance than anything else, life insurance and annuities, is that insurance is not investing. All right? We need to keep them separate. One of the most blood-sucking industries in the world is the life insurance industry. And all the life insurance agents that hear this on Audiverse, I love you, but I have to tell the truth. Uh, Insurance is a defensive financial tool. It's a shield. Investing is an offensive tool. You're trying to grow your money. It's a sword. When you go to war, you want a shield and a sword. You don't want a two-in-one weapon that is a sword and a shield that doesn't do either one very well. You understand what I'm saying? You might get killed. A lot of insurance products that purport to be an investment product, that's what they are. They're not a fork, they're not a spoon, they're a spork, and you kind of wish you had a spoon and a fork instead, a shield and a a sword. So in this situation, um, we need to make sure that we optimize the tool, the financial tool that we're using, because there are also costs involved. Now, I could spend a long time talking about insurance, and when I did all my financial planning training, my insurance book was twice as thick as all of the other books, even more than the the tax textbook, okay? So that just tells you how much there is to talk about insurance. But I have a presentation that I gave a number of years ago dealing with insurance and risk specifically. So if you want more information, and I go more in-depth into life insurance particularly, because I know some uh, questions will be, You know, there are some inspired counsel that we're familiar with, that we've heard about, uh, about life insurance. How do we rectify, you know, how do we uh, harmonize what was said and all of that? This presentation goes into that and explains that. So here's the link and the the QR code if you want more information, but we're not going to spend any more time focusing on that tonight. So the next foundational building block are employee benefits. Uh, I'm not going to say a whole lot other than Make sure you understand what they are in your workplace and take advantage of them because sometimes the benefits are worth as much or more than the actual salary that you are paid. So some of the key ones are the 401k, 403b match. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Always take the match. It's the closest thing to free money you're (laughs) going to experience. Of course, other than the vesting schedule, that's important for you to understand when you can actually take the money with you. But if there is a match dollar for dollar, let's say they match you 5%, you put in 5%, they instantly match you 5%, you've just doubled your money. That's a 100% rate of return for zero effort. So take the match. Uh, next, insurance. A lot of workplaces. This is one of the biggest benefits would be insurance, whether it's health, disability, maybe H- HSAs or FSAs, flexible spending accounts or health spending accounts, uh, health savings accounts, I mean things of that nature. And then also, some employers, particularly the larger companies, they have a lot of discounts that you may not be aware of. They have discounts on your cell phone plan, for car rentals, uh, for continued education, even for tuition assistance, uh, things of that nature. Make sure you read your employee handbook and take advantage of the benefits that you have. All right, estate planning. This is one of those things that is so important we'd really rather not have to talk about it because it forces us to reckon with our mortality. And even as a young person, the reality is I might die just as, you know, just as likely as an older person. So we need to recognize that we have a responsibility not just in life but also in death because what good is it if we have been responsible with our financial stewardship all through our lives and then everything just goes down the drain after we die? So estate planning answers a couple key questions. What happens to your dependents if you die? So this is particularly important for those of us who have minor children who aren't independent yet. This is the most important thing. Who's going to raise our kids? Do we want the state to decide that? Have mercy, no. We need to be responsible to make that decision. Number two, what happens to your assets if you die? This is what we usually think about when it comes to estate planning. And then the third one, we don't even have to die to have need of an estate plan. How about major decisions if we were incapacitated? Okay? These are important uh, decisions that we have to make ahead of time because if we don't, the state will make it for us. And the state is not going to give our assets to where we want. And they're not going to have our best interest in mind, certainly not God's best interest in mind. And also we certainly don't want anyone else determining how our children will be raised. So putting together an estate plan, there are It's not just the will. There are a series of documents that we're going to need to put together. Number one would be the will, and in some cases, a trust. I'm not going to get into all the intricacies about that, but a will and a trust, largely the difference is one is going to help you avoid probate in the case of your death, and that could be a serious savings in many regards. So a will or a trust, and then secondarily, guardianship designations, which is uh, what happens to our children and who will be responsible for them in case we're gone. Number three will be a durable power of attorney. So this is someone who can make legal decisions on your behalf in the event of your incapacitation, financial decisions and so forth. Number four, this is an important one, beneficiary designations. What are these? If you have a financial account, say a brokerage or 401k or an IRA, you are going to have in your account profiles a section called beneficiaries and you get to name who the beneficiaries are for this specific account. Very important to remember, the beneficiary designations in those accounts supersede, meaning they are taken in higher priority than what you state in your will. Meaning, if there is a discrepancy between who you name as a beneficiary in the profile of your account versus what's stated in the will, the beneficiary designation is going to have priority. I actually am aware of a faithful uh, woman who passed away and she had a large sum of money that she wanted to donate to various ministries. It was in an IRA. And uh, her attorney notified you know, the various ministries that this was her wishes, except she had forgotten to change the beneficiary designations in her account. She had a friend many years ago before her account had grown to be you know hundreds of thousands of dollars worth Uh, not a church member don't know if he's a christian at all but she thought hey i just want to do my neighbor a good deed i'm going to make him a beneficiary and you know give him a little something in case i die well she never changed that designation and so legally speaking that individual had priority and so the attorney said we will write him a letter and you know, whatever, and see if he's willing to relinquish, you know, this quarter of a million dollars or however much it was. And as you guessed, uh, he said, no way, Jose. And so all of that money, a quarter of a million dollars or whatever it was, ended up in the hands of who knows who that person was, instead of where this woman wanted it to go, which was into these, you know, however many ministries that she was uh, planning to give to. Very important, okay? Estate planning, It's not just having a plan, but keeping the plan updated and understanding how they work. So that's a beneficiary designation. Number five, this is fairly new, digital estate plan. We now live very digital lives, and we have a lot of assets, things that are valuable, that are not physical, tangible, they're not in a vault, they're not in a safe, they're not hidden under the mattress, they're in the cloud. Things like, you know, air miles, miles, points with your hotel, your credit card reward points, all of the photos that you have ever taken that's uploaded into these accounts. You know, um, all of your passwords. Uh, if you have cryptocurrency in your private wallet, all of, and your whole social media profile, and everything that's associated with that. For some people, there is this tremendous amount of value, monetary or just sentimental value, wrapped up in all of that stuff. Well, what's going to happen to it if you die? So having a digital estate plan, meaning who gets what, right? Having that uh, spelled out is very important. Number 6, living a living will or advanced directives. This is talking about, you know, do not resuscitate orders and things of that nature if you were to be found in that situation, do you keep me on life support or not? Uh it helps the family uh, know what your wishes are ahead of time. Number 7, healthcare power of attorney. So this is different than the durable power of attorney because this is strictly for healthcare decisions. Uh, And then number eight, letter of intent, which is more or less just your instructions to the executor of your will or your trustee to understand what your wishes are in a more narrative form. And these estate planning documents comprise your estate plan. So I know your question, boy, that's a lot of work. Is there someone who can help me with this? Well, yes, there are. The number one place I recommend people to check would be the plan giving and trust services departments at our local conference. If you are a Seventh-day Adventist, or at the universities, I know Southern Avenue University has a department, or our larger 501c3 ministries, and I will say for myself, I actually went through, uh, it is written, in the trust services department, uh, who helped me put together my estate plan. And usually, if you go through one of these channels, there is a, there is a benefit where they will provide you this service for free, as long as you leave a, some, a certain something to them in your estate. And if that was part of your plan anyway, then it's a win-win, right? So this is, that's how we viewed it in our family. And so it was a tremendous value to us uh, because otherwise you can always just go straight to an attorney and these plan services or plan giving and and trust service departments, they have their attorneys that they work with. So everything is still done through a legal process and everything is above board, of course, but there is a representative that works with you to help you through the process uh, and to explain things to you. Otherwise, you could go straight to an attorney, and you need to find an estate planning attorney who can draft these documents for you, and uh, for a basic will, you're looking at several hundred dollars. For a full living trust, living revocable trust, uh, would be in the thousands, several thousand, and they will draft all the documents for you and help you through the process. Now, I know there are also online will makers. I will say, proceed with caution. You get what you pay for, as they say. And uh, it's better than nothing, I suppose, but uh, because there isn't a human being actually walking you through the process, I would be cautious uh, about going that direction. But uh, they are worth looking into if you really, cost is a a problem and you have no other way. So this takes us to the end of the foundational part of the pyramid. And fortunately, as we go up, there are fewer, fewer building blocks. And once we have the foundations built, uh, built, then it's time for growth. And the four blocks here would be retirement savings, college savings, maximize tax efficiency, and accelerating our mortgage reduction, meaning paying off the house. And of course, the biggest question in this section must be retirement. There was once upon a time not long ago where there is an analogy of the three-legged stool of retirement. Meaning there are three stools of income to support a retirement. There is the pension, usually from your workplace, uh, or a defined benefit plan is another way to call it. And then there is social security, which is basically a public pension from the government. And then there are the personal savings. The three legs of this stool is supposed to support us in retirement, but this is what happened. Pensions have gone away. Largely, they don't exist anymore unless you've been grandfathered in to some older plan. So pensions have gone away, and then we all know that Social Security is not sustainable. Uh, Even by their own admission, they will run out of their reserves by 2033, so about 10 years. So by that point, Social Security will no longer be able to pay 100% of the benefits that have been promised. Now... If you ask me for my opinion, my guess is that there will be be some last-minute, last-ditch effort, and those who are already on Social Security more than likely will be preserved. They will continue to get their benefits, but those of us who are farther away, we will have reduced benefits, increased taxes, and a later time in which we can start drawing. That's my personal opinion, because if I could be perfectly honest... Social Security recipients vote. I think you know what I mean. <laughs> and so that is a constituent that those in the elected office do not want to disturb. Uh, but those of us who are younger, we're like, ah, let's just let them deal with it, right? But if Social Security is wobbly, pensions are gone, we've only, only got one leg left. And that's personal savings. And that is a problem and a significant burden, particularly if time is not on our side, right? If we have lived a life in which we had not had the opportunity to, to prepare in the way that we would have liked to. So here are a few things about preparing for retirement that could help alleviate some of this pressure. It may not solve all the problems, but it will alleviate some of it. Number one is to adjust the lifestyle and start saving now. Because adjusting our lifestyle, meaning living a, 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 a slimmer lifestyle, more frugal lifestyle, means that we're going to not only be able to save more now, but we're going to need less in the future when we are in retirement. we become more accustomed to a trimmer lifestyle. Number two, I've said it before, I'm saying it again. Invest in our personal health. The number one expense in retirement, usually, is healthcare, And if we can minimize that by maintaining our health, And having a healthy lifestyle, a good diet, exercise, and and all of the rest uh, it is going to also reduce the cost of retirement. And that also plays into number three. I know a lot of people don't like this, but it is the reality. If we can't afford retirement, we may have to work longer. And we cannot work longer if our health doesn't permit. You understand? So having good health permits us Uh, to even have the option of working longer if that is a need. And uh, I will say this, sometimes working longer does not necessarily mean working at the same intensity as you once were. Maybe working part-time, scaling back. In fact, for a lot of particularly men, having a phased progression into retirement is better for the mental health than a cold turkey working at 100 miles an hour. And then the next day I'm sitting at home looking at my wife why are you, do- what are you doing here? You know, that type of experience. Um, because I think, I, I can speak for myself, you know, men, we need to be productively doing something, contributing, building, you know, and uh, to have a cold turkey when we're not ready for it, sometimes it's worse, sometimes it's worse. So it's not the end of the world to scale back, is what I, what I mean. And another thing I'll say, this is my personal philosophy, I say, better to wear out than to rust out. I think it is better to be active. It keeps our mind sharp. And, uh, you know, there is no reason for us to not be contributing. So number four, get out of debt. This is one of the biggest ways that we can put ourselves in position to be more prepared in retirement. And then number five, estimate how much you need to save. And I know when I say that, everyone's like, well, how how do I figure that out? Well, (laughs) This is the reason why there is a multi-billion dollar financial planning industry to answer this very question. So I'm going to try to boil it down to help, help you with this question. How much do I need to save? Number one, we need to estimate our annual living expenses for the first year of retirement. That's where we start. And you project that based on how much you need today. And of course, if you're closer to retirement, that number is going to be more accurate. If you're farther from retirement, say 20 or 25 years away, you're going to have to remember inflation. If you need $50,000 this year, 25 years from now, $50,000 is not going to be $50,000 then, so you need to adjust for inflation. And then from that, you subtract how much you anticipate to uh, receive from Social Security or pensions or elsewhere. And then you take that remaining number and you multiply it by 25, or another way to do the same exact mathematical formula is you divide by 4%. We'll explain why in a moment. And this is the approximate amount that you will need to save for retirement, right? This gives you a ballpark figure. This is very back-of-the-envelope math. It gives you the general direction, the ballpark where you're shooting, and you refine as you get closer. So what about this 4% deal? Okay, the 4% rule is based on research. Based on a deep dive into a half-century of market data in 1994, William Bergen concluded that essentially any conceivable economic scenario, even the more tumultuous ones, would allow for a 4% withdrawal each year adjusted for inflation. That's important. It takes into account inflation for 30 years. And this is using a 60-40 portfolio model, which is 60% equities and 40% bonds. So based on the research, 4% is the safe withdrawal rate for the typical lifespan of a retirement um, through all the market cycles. And so to give you an illustration of what this looks like, If you need $50,000 of annual living expense and then you get $25,000 from, say, Social Security, you have $25,000 per year that you're going to have to fund from your own savings. You take that $25,000 per year, you multiply it by 25, and you get $625,000 as how much you're going to need saved to fund your retirement, okay? If we go up to $75,000, same amount coming in from Social Security, you need to have $50,000 a year from savings, you need $1.25 million. And if you live at a $100,000 uh, annual living expense limit, uh, $25,000 in social security, you only $75,000 in your personal savings per year. We're looking at almost $1.9 million. So this gives you the rough back-of-the-envelope math formula for you to figure out what your target number uh, roughly should be. So that's retirement. What about college? A lot could be said about college. I'm just going to mention a few things. The first question really has to be the question, is college even necessary? I know this is heresy, especially coming from an Asian. But I was talking with my mechanic the other week, and he was explaining that there is a nationwide shortage of mechanics. And he's like, it's a good living if you can get it. He explained how it works. He says, if you go into a mechanic shop, and you need, let's say you need the brakes changed, there is a flat Floor rate is, I believe, what they call. Two hours for this job, and then it's just a however many hour, you know, for the hour. That's how much they charge, and that's how much they pay the mechanic. It's a two-hour job, so even if you finish it in 90 minutes, you get paid for two hours of work. And so for the mechanic, this person told me, the manager told me, they're good mechanics, consistently, consistently turn around the equivalent pay of 12 to 16 hours worth of work in an eight-hour day? It's a good living if you can get it. And guess what? You can get it without a college degree. Is college really necessary? Not for everyone. If there are certain people who are mechanically inclined, they may not need a college degree if that is where their skills and their intelligence uh, and and, and their uh, aptitude, I should say, uh, trends. But of course, if you're looking at a STEM field, if you want to be an engineer, if you want to be a doctor, yes, you're going to need to get a degree, you're going to need to go to college, of course. And uh, one of the best ways to save, the biggest ways to save, is school choice. Where you choose to go to school makes the biggest difference in the tuition, of course. And then there are alternative routes as well. There's online education, there's trade school, there's entrepreneurship, community college, missionary training schools. And it all depends, of course, on which route the student wants to take. There are also work and scholarship programs. Uh, and of course, uh, there are the savings accounts, 529 and ESA accounts for tax advantage savings. Just be aware of the fine print because there are a lot of limit, limitations, what you can or cannot do. And finally, some level of student loan may be appropriate depending on the field of study and the income potential of the career. If you want to become a dentist... Or a medical doctor chances are you're going to have to take out student loans but those are careers on the other end have high earning potential that if you do it right you should be able to pay it off reasonably uh, in a reasonable time frame but if you're getting a you know underwater basket weaving for hundred thousand dollars a year a degree from some ivy league school on the other end and you don't have a job no 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 not a good idea all right a lot could be said about that we're going to move on now, taxes. You're all going to fall asleep, so I'm just going to say two things <laughs> about taxes. If you have to worry about taxes, it is evidence that the Lord has blessed you with some measure of wealth, so you should rejoice if you need to worry about taxes. That's just to help you feel a little bit better. But the reality is that in this country, the progressive tax code massively benefits those that earn less. So for many who are earning less money, they, they may pay no tax at all, and so, as you rise in the tax bracket, you're going to have to consider taxes more and the implications, particularly with your investments. And so, the simple advice, find a good CPA. All right. If you have tax issues, a good CPA is certainly worthwhile. So, we're not going to spend any more time on taxes uh, unless you have questions and come to me afterwards. And paying off the house, we also talked about this in a previous session, but in light of what we said about retirement, I think it's important to to think about a few things. You know, low interest fixed rate mortgages are lower priority debt to pay off, especially nowadays if you've got a sub 3% interest rate 30-year fixed rate mortgage, you're feeling pretty good when inflation is so high and you get 5% on your cash and so forth. But we still want to get out of debt eventually. One of the reasons why is because of retirement. Paying off the house by retirement will greatly reduce the cash flow requirement, thereby reducing the amount you need to save. Housing, whether your mortgage payment or rent or something of that nature, usually is the largest chunk of our household budget. And so, if you're in retirement and you still have to make a house payment, you're going to need a lot more. Uh, you're going to need a much larger nest egg to be able to sustain that. So, paying off the house before retirement is one surefire way to ensure that you can have a more sustainable retirement. So that takes us now to the third level of this pyramid, which is now financial independence. So we build our foundation. We grow our assets and now we've reached the point where we have financial independence and now we're talking about spending. So retirement spending is particularly the biggest question. How do I make sure that the money doesn't run out? But part of that is also discretionary spending. It's not just the required stuff, but also stuff that we want to do. So the bottom two levels of this pyramid is talking about wealth accumulation. The last two sections or last two levels is wealth distribution. So to, to address this point, I'm just going to throw out some major questions that we're going to have to think about in terms of retirement. Number 1 is retirement income. The question is how do I systematically turn accumulated wealth into a steady stream of income and to make the best use of our social security benefits. That's one of the biggest questions in the financial planning industry. How do you transfer or, or transform the assets into a steady income? Number 2, healthcare costs. How to manage Medicare and increase health-related expenses. I've mentioned this already. Managing our health through lifestyle change and chronic, uh, managing our cr- chronic health conditions is um, going to be one of the best things to do to, to have a happy retirement. And then that also bleeds into number three. An estimated of 70% of seniors will need long-term care at some point. And this is one of those areas in financial planning where I don't really have a good answer because long-term care insurance is extremely expensive, and nursing homes sometimes are necessary. But perhaps for the, the solution to this really is the fifth commandment. If we have families that can sustain and to help and support each other, this can mitigate some of the, the financial burden of long-term care type of situations. And then particularly if we're living a healthy lifestyle, particularly, you know, we, we've heard about the blue zones and Adventist lifestyle and so forth, There's this other risk, which is longevity risk of living too long. If you live too long, you're going to outlive your money. And so that's another risk. So if you're too healthy, there's another risk on that front too, right? So how to manage the possibility of outliving our money? There are tools such as annuities and charitable gift annuities and things of that nature that can mitigate against this. We're going to talk about this on the next slide where there is an intersection of of several of these uh, issues that, um, that there's actually a good solution for. Number five, this is a big one, housing. Where do we relocate to? How much do we downsize? How close do we move to family, our children, and so forth? This is one of the biggest areas that optimization can happen. You know, many retirees bought a home many, many years ago. It's appreciated in value. They could raise their kids in it. They don't need such a big house. They can downsize, probably move closer to the kids, and that's where they can extract the equity out of the home and then that cash then can be turned into an income stream to help pay for their retirement. Not only that, moving then gets them close to the family, which helps deal with some of the long-term care type of uh, needs and health care and so forth. But this is a uh, this is a situation I know from a personal friend of mine that can be that can have a lot can, can be quite fraught with interpersonal and family conflict. I have a friend. Her parents grew up on a farm, or she was raised on a farm, and her parents have lived there for over 50 years, a 160-acre farm. Mom and Dad are in their 80s now, and recently Dad was in the barn, fell on his head, broke his shoulder, almost suffocated from all the hay bales, and then a week later, he had a stroke. All by himself, all the kids have moved away. And then now Mom has dementia, and she has arthritis. And so all the kids are multiple states away, but Mom and Dad, they said we're never leaving. This is, this is where we raise our kids. This is a farm. But that was one of those really difficult uh, situations in the family that has to do with this question in retirement. And the family, these are not necessarily personal finance. They have fa- personal finance implications, but it's much larger than that. It's a, it's a family discussion that, you know, parents and children are going to have to discuss and work through. So I'm just recognizing that these can be challenging discussions. And of course, number six, the bucket list. Many people in retirement, finally, we have the means, we have the time, we still have the health and energy to do the things that we have put off in our lives. Well, I say, for many people, that is the time to do those things. And it is uh, worth uh, investing in those types of experiences. And then charitable giving. How to give more to charitable causes. And then taxes. There are things called required minimum distributions. And then if we have taxable accounts, there are capital gains to deal with. And how do we minimize the taxes so that it doesn't eat into our retirement income? These are some of the the concerns that come into mind when we talk about investing, or or rather retirement. So there is, uh, I, I want to make another pitch here regarding the plan giving and trust services departments of our various ministries in the church. Because there are financial tools that allow us to accomplish multiple of these objectives in retirement uh, that is actually win-win for everyone. I'll just give you one example. We're worried about outliving our money. There is uh, outliving our money so that is a longevity risk and then we want to do more charitable giving and we want to save on taxes. There is such a thing called a charitable gift annuity in which you get a tax benefit for donating an asset to a charitable cause, usually a ministry, and in return they invest the proceeds and you get a Annuity, meaning you get income for the rest of your life. And so there are financial instruments that can help you mitigate your taxes, allow you to give charitably, and also to fund your retirement through some of these options. And so I highly recommend if you have some questions about these things, uh, talk to the plan giving and trust service departments in some of these ministries. They will be able to help you with all of the options. So this takes us to the top of the pyramid, and we're going to wrap up here shortly. Surplus giving, and now we're talking about legacy. Legacy. Proverbs eleven twenty five: 25. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. Psalm 112, 5-6. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved, he will be remembered forever. You see, the legacy of the righteous is that they are just and they are generous. This is why God gives his people... ability to gain wealth. So the super wealthy of the world, they have their endowments. They have their foundations. They build these monumental, you know, monuments to themselves and pat themselves on the back. Well, for us normal people, we don't have the means to do that. So it might just mean freedom to volunteer more, donate more, mentor the next generation, get more active in our church or community. We need a measure of wealth in order to have the freedom to do that, okay? That's the legacy piece of giving back and surplus giving. So when we think about the foundations of the pyramid, we're talking about building habits of financial discipline. And once we have that foundation in place, then we can accumulate wealth, we can grow the assets that God has given to us, and then that leads us to a point where we are financially independent, in which we're now thinking of wealth distribution. But the ultimate goal is to have a legacy of charity and generosity. And this more or less corresponds with the life cycle of when we pass through life. When we are younger, we should be building the foundation. When we are starting in our career, we begin the growth process. And then later on, as we have worked and accumulated wealth, we become independent. And then we have our legacy uh, in mind at that time. Of course, this time frame can be stretched out or can be compressed. Some people, they end up earning a large sum of money early on in life and so they're quick they move quicker down these steps but this is in general the cycle of life planning and so here we are again this is just a summary of the financial planning pyramid to give you a bird's eye view of the various building blocks uh, that comprise our financial planning picture and this should hopefully, can give us a framework to understand where we are in the building process. And so I just want to conclude with one final verse from Scripture, not just for tonight, but also for all six parts of our session together, our seminar together. And this is the verse from 3 John 2. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. Let's end with prayer. Father in heaven, we're thankful that you are a God of order and you are a God who has given us practical counsel in your word to, to count the cost, to plan ahead, and also that you will bless our plans insofar as our plans are in harmony with your will. And so we pray that as we strive to, to operate and to be stewards in accordance to what you have revealed, we pray that you will bless us and you will guide us. Be with us the remainder of this evening and the rest of this summer. May we apply these principles that we have discussed over the last six weeks to be able to be wise stewards of your means so that when you come, you can say, Come, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of thy Lord. This is our prayer and our desire, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.